Please stand as we read God's Word. And we read God's Word for God's people. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where they laid where he laid. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. For your word informs us of what happened 2000 years ago in detail. This is history that we're reading. A a true story that changed the trajectory of the world. And so, Lord, this is a day that you have made and we rejoice and are glad in it because we know that Sunday, this day, thousands of years ago, you rose from the dead and the tomb is empty to prove that you are and you truly are the Son of God, our Messiah, our Savior. And because of that, in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Again, this joy, these pleasures forevermore are ours because the tomb is empty. Amen. Guys, go ahead and be seated. This is what they felt like when it happened. And today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them, it means for us. I love that video. I showed it, I think like four years ago it came out. And it really puts a tangible thing on like, 
how would, if Jesus was in our culture, our day, and we got that text message, how would you have responded? Uh, would you have been like the old guy at the flip phone, you know, just like tears, you know, they still work, they got the message done. Would you be like the guy on the mountain, just like, yes! Would you be dancing? Would you be telling all your friends? How would you have responded to the greatest story ever lived and told? We are part of that story this morning. We experienced that story this morning. I love what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis with J.R. Tolkien were talking about fairy tales and myths. And C.S. Lewis said this, All myths, fictional stories, are an attempt to shine light on truth. The true myth is the ultimate light shining on the ultimate truth. Now the story of Christ, Christianity, the gospel, is simply the true myth. A story working on us in the same way as all other myths, but with this tremendous difference. It really happened. It isn't made up. It isn't a fairy tale. It is true. And this is why we all love uh, fictional movies we, we, uh, and stories such as Lord of the Rings. Who doesn't love Lord of the Rings, right? Who doesn't love Star Wars? Who doesn't love Star Trek? I don't really love Star Trek. I'm a Star I'm more of a Star Wars guy, you know? Dogs, Star Wars, cats, Star Trek. Okay, you guys get the point. All right, right? No, who, who loves Harry? Who doesn't love Harry Potter? Right? We, 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 we all love these stories, these fictional stories. Why? Because they contain truths that our souls long for, that our, our souls desire, that, that we wish we built our lives on, such as like good overcomes evil, that love conquers all, uh, that the, the hero of the story overcomes incredible obstacles to save the day. All these fictional stories, all these fairy tales, all these myths point to as C.S. Lewis says, the true myth. Christianity is the true myth because it really happened. One of my heroes of the, uh, of the faith, R.C. Sproul, always told his seminary students, his, his, these students ready to go be pastors and preach the word, he says, find the drama in the story, then preach the drama. Well, this morning we are at the very pinnacle of the true myth. We are at the very pinnacle the story of redemption, the drama of the story of redemption, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb. Today we're going to see and, and hopefully experience uh, the truths in this, not only intellectually with our minds, but also with our hearts and with our souls. We have sorrow turning to joy. We have supernatural events surrounding. We have villains and we have good overcoming evil. And we have the one hero who overcame impossible obstacle to save the day. And not only the day, but to save you and to save me. Scene one, we are introduced to the witnesses of the first resurrected Sunday. Look at verse one with me. Now, after the Sabbath, Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday, the new day of the story of redemption has begun. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, we know that Friday, Jesus was uh, falsely accused. He was beaten uh, he was nailed to the cross. He died on the cross and then he was buried. And now we're three days later on Sunday and we are introduced to these two characters, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. How would you like to be the other Mary, right? You think she read that? I'm like, the other Mary? What? Come on now. 
But she must have been all right with it. She made, she made the final cut. So yes and amen, I'm sure. Here's the thing. And this is so important. We, we touch on this every single Easter because it's one of the high points of the story and what makes it true. The first witnesses to see and witness and experience the resurrected Christ were women. All four Gospels point this out. And, and here, Matthew just highlights two. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And we know from other Gospel accounts there were more than two. There were a multitude. Uh, Mary and the other Mary might have been the leaders of this posse of this entourage of crew of multiple women. Uh, these were women that heard Jesus teach. These are women that heard and experienced Jesus' love and healing. Crossing over from death to life, in particular Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out of her. They witnessed His trial. They were there around the cross when Jesus was saying His last sayings and gave up His final breath. They were there when they took Jesus down and they were there when they took Him to the tomb and buried Him. They were there when they rolled the rock over the grave. They were there. Where were the men? Where were the disciples? They were scared. They were hiding. They were not there. But these women's devotion and love to Christ, they were there. They saw it all. So why is this so significant to point out and highlight the women? Because in Roman and Jewish culture back then, as we know that women were marginalized. In particular, in a court of law, their, their testimony wasn't valid. Even if they saw it happen, they saw the crime happen, their testimony would be invalid. That's how they marginalized women there. Josephus, the historian, said this. This is why people didn't believe in the resurrection because he said that even the witnesses of multiple women was not accepted because, quote, of the levity and boldness of their sex, end quote. Another skeptic, Renal, said this. You can't believe in the resurrection because it is the testimony of hysterical women. Yeah, now see, now, now, now ladies, I didn't write the mail. I'm just delivering it to you, all right? So don't, this is what they say. It's not what we believe. Christianity, in fact, holds up women to the highest standard in any culture and any philosophy. So if you wanted to start a new movement back then, if you wanted to be taken seriously, your star witnesses, your first witnesses wouldn't be built on the testimony of women, in particular Mary Magdalene, the star witness, as I already pointed out, that she was possessed by seven demons. But that's how history happens, so that's how it is recorded, which makes it true. These women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, which kicked off a series of other eyewitnesses. The disciples finally got to see and experience the empty tomb. John, Peter, Thomas, and the rest of the disciples. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we saw that Jesus showed Himself to over 500 people at one time. They were the first witnesses. But here's the thing. These ladies were not expecting a resurrected Savior. They were walking to the tomb expecting a dead Savior. They were walking to the tomb to finish up the burial um, uh, order and prevent the rapid decay with, uh, with spices and ointments. They were there to anoint the body and to finish the process. And on their way to the tomb, Mary had a thought. It's like, oh, wait a second. Matthew 16 points this out. How are we going to move the stone? How are we going to move the stone to get to Jesus' body? And in this, there's a great little lesson for all of us in here. You see, most of us, when life gets hard, we just see the goodness of God that goes before us. So many times when, when life gets harder, we see a, an obstacle in front of us. Most of us are in here are like negative Nancys, right? 
we immediately go to the worst possible scenario. The worst possible case. We say there's no way out of this. There's no way out of this health, medical condition. There's no way out of this financial situation we find ourselves in. We are toast. Some might even say, suck it up, buttercup, right? And the question is here that it was back then. Who's going to move the stone? Who's going to move this obstacle in our lives? And then we turn the corner and we see that God has already gone before us and moved the stone. He's already taken care of that financial need. He's already taken care of that relational strife. He's already taken care of that financial burden. The stone has been moved. The stone has been moved. And in my life and in my ministry, I've seen this over and over again. I freaked out over certain situations that we find our, I found myself in or our family in. Only to see that God remove the stone. I look at these faces in here and I know most of you and I know some of your stories and I know the Lord has done the same thing. So be reminded that for us, fall in the steps of, of, of these Marys and let our love and our devotion uh, bring us to Jesus and have faith and trust in what He can do for us in moving the stone. That moves us to scene two. The angels meet the Roman guards. Verses two and three. Look at verse two. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came in and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And for fear of him, the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, the first question we ask ourselves is why, why are there soldiers around the tomb? And that we have to look back at, at chapter 27, the last verses in 27. So do that quickly in verse 62 of Matthew 27. We see that the chief priests go to Pilate and they ask Pilate to put Roman guards there because of what they believe what Jesus said. But we're going to see that Mary and the disciples and the apostles obviously didn't believe. Jesus says, hey, in three days I'm going to die and in three days I'm going to raise again. But the chief scribes and Pharisees believe that because they say in verse 63, he said that in three days he will rise. So we want to put guards around there to make sure that, that we can tell of that fable, of that myth, that he's not really going to do it. We want the stone there, we want the seal there, and we want maximum security there so that this doesn't take place. And so can you put the Roman soldiers there? And Pilate grants their wish. And there's Roman soldiers there. Some say there's four, some say there's about 15 or so. Um, and we got to remember who these Roman soldiers were. These are like the, the Marines back then of our day. Uh, these guys are, are warriors. They are soldiers. They are built for battle, Right? And they get this call and they're thinking like, oh man, this is just going to be easy money. I just got to go to this tomb, sit there and guard it for whatever the next day. Easy money. Oh, then all of a sudden, behold, this angel shows up. Now we shouldn't be surprised that an angel shows up because throughout scripture, we see angels show up throughout scripture in significant points all over the Bible. Uh, when we went through Exodus, you guys remember that an angel helped lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, you remember at, at Mount Sinai, it was the angel that helped, Hebrew says, that helped give the, the, the law in Acts. Uh, it was the angel that was at the incarnation of Jesus. Angels, right? It, it was the angel that was with Jesus when he was tested and tested in 40 days in the desert. It was, there was an angel when Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane. It says an angel came to minister to him. And there's an angel at the resurrection, at the empty tomb. 
Now this angel, he's something else. This angel is stunning. It says when he comes down, the earth quakes. The reason why there's an earthquake, because the text tells us, the earth quaked for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled the stone away. And then he sat on it. Read the Scriptures. There's details in there for a reason. Don't you love that? This angel descends from heaven, earthquake, he rolls away the stone, and then just hops on it and sits on, the, on a stone. Now, I'm going to give you what I think happened next. This is not inspired Scripture. This is Aaron's, Aaron's kind of thought. Hey, this is what I have next. The angel, he's sitting on the rock, he's looking down, and he's rolling up his sleeves, you know. Now, look at his clothes. How are they described? How's his appearance described? His appearance was like lightning and clothing white as snow. This angel was dressed in his heavenly duds. He didn't have time to go change. It says what? He descended from heaven. So this angel shows up, and of course he's in a spectacular garb in his heavenly bling because he just came from heaven. So that's one thing. So he's sitting there on the stone, and he's rolling up his sleeves. He knows the soldiers are there. And this is what I think he says to them. All right, boys. How do you guys want to do this? this? This could go a couple ways. I'll let you choose. Back to inspired Scripture. How did they respond? The soldiers responded in fear and trembled and fell over like dead men. And I think at that point the angel said, Good choice. And what we see here is a little play on words. This earthquake and the soldier's body quake. Again, the angel comes down, and because the angel comes down, the earth quakes. But then because the soldiers were in the presence of this heavenly being, their bodies quaked. And they pulled a fainting goat on them, right? Now quickly, look at Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Notice it says, some of the guards ran to the chief priests to tell them what happened. This is a response to the empty tomb. And now for a Roman soldier to leave his post, something incredible had to happen. They did not do this because them leaving their post, they would be immediately put to death. And, and usually it would be death by be burned and alive. One said this, one, one way the soldier... Um, would die as they would strip the soldiers of their own clothes and then they would be burned alive, starting a fire by their own clothes. You guys remember when, when Paul and them were in, in prison, or Peter was in prison, uh, or was it Paul? I'm getting mixed up. They're in prison. There's a great earthquake and the, and the prisoners were escaping the, and the Roman guard was about to kill himself. Why? Because he knew he failed at his job. These prisoners were going to escape. He was facing death, so he went to, went, went to face death. And they said, no, 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 don't, don't do that. So we see that some of these Warrior soldiers go and respond to the chief priests, not to the Roman superiors, because they knew what they were going to get. And the chief priest told them what? This is your explanation for the empty tomb. And, and here's the deal. Every scholar understands and believes that the tomb is empty. That Jesus' body was buried there and it was empty. And everyone has to come up with an explanation why the tomb is empty. And over the last several years here at the crossing, 12 years since we've been existing, we've covered all those different examples, and they're silly, just like this one here. There is no good explanation for the empty tomb except for that Jesus is risen. Here's the, here's the 
explanation from the chief priests. Guards, tell them, tell everybody that you fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. Right? Now let's just think about that logically for a second. First of all, there's four to 15 of these soldiers around this tomb. There's this, this stone. This stone is about a foot thick. It's about four feet, uh, and, uh, four or five feet high. It weighs about two to four thousand pounds. How do you roll that stone away quietly, right? Number one. And two, it's the disciples. Peter's not known for being quiet, is he? But three, if they're sleeping, how do they know it was the disciples that stole the body and not somebody else? I mean, so you see how this explanation falls apart. And every explanation falls apart, whether it's the hallucination theory, whether it's the swoon theory, whatever theory is out there, it falls apart. The only right and true explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is risen. Scene three, the empty tomb where the angels, the angel makes a proclamation or encouragement to the women. Look at verse five. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you come to seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Now, just as we said, every account, every gospel account uh, highlights the women. Every gospel account highlights the angel. Now, Matthew and Mark record one angel. Luke and John record two angels being there. And this is just normal reporting. If, 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 if four of us in here wrote a story about what is happening right now on this Sunday at the crossing, we would all have the same story, but we'd highlight different features of the story. We'd highlight maybe differently who's here and how many people and what we're wearing and, and who was teaching, who was singing, what the building looked like. We'd all have our testimonies to what it is, but it would look different. So Matthew and Mark thought one angel was important. Luke and John thought two angels were important. So that's how they captured the story. And since we're talking about movies, I, I don't know, Vantage Point is a great movie. I don't know if anyone's seen Vantage Point, but it's a great movie that talks about and has this very thing on, on this scene of the assassination of the president from multiple different um, uh, viewings. And so that's a great, it's a great movie. You want to check this out. Multiple accounts. So this is not a contradiction in Scripture. Again, this is just normal recruiting. One angel or two. How many angels there were two? But Matthew and Mark only thought one were important. But that's not what's important. What's important is verse 6. What's important is verse 6, what the angel says. He, Jesus, is not here. For He has risen as He said He would. Come see the place where He lay. If I was putting into today's vernacular, verse 6 would read like this. He gone. Right? He's not there. He gone. And the question we say is, now why? Why did the angel come and move the stone? And the answer is not, not to let Jesus out. Jesus could already get out. The resurrected body. It's so the women could get in and see the tomb was empty. It was to see the disciples could come in and see that the tomb was empty. That Jesus was risen. That He was not there. John 20 captures this. It captures Mary and her experience. It says this in John 20 verse 12. Mary looked in 
and saw where Jesus had laid in between the two angels, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, details matter. And this is one of the most amazing portions of Scripture in all the Bible. Mary looked in and saw where Jesus was supposed to be, but he was not there. What did she see laying there was his linens folded up neatly and nicely, but he was gone. And you had an angel at the head and an angel at the foot. For Jewish readers of that time, they would immediately think of the Ark of the Covenant. They would immediately think of the Ark of the Covenant. We have gone through Exodus and we've gone through Hebrews and we've talked a lot about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant pointed us to this moment right here to prove that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for your sin and my sin once for all. Real quickly, the Ark of the Covenant, as you guys know, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, once a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies only where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would sprinkle the blood of the bulls and the goats on the Ark of the Covenant in between the two angels, right? But we know that Hebrew says that the, 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 uh, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It only covered them for a year where the high priest had to go in year after year, and they had to do this sacrifice for their cover of their sins. When Jesus came and He gave up His life on Friday night and died for your sins and my sins, it was once for all. It was finished. And the empty tomb proves and demonstrates that Jesus' life and death on the cross, His blood that was shed for your sin and my sin, proved to fulfill, appease, and pay the debt that was due. He is raised from the grave. And again, this proves that. This is the greatest implication of the empty tomb for your life and for my life. You ask the question, like, what what difference does the empty tomb 2,000 years have to do with you and me this morning? It has everything to do with your salvation and my salvation. It has everything to do with the forgiveness of your sin and my sin. That on Friday when Jesus was nailed and crucified and shed His blood for your sin and my sin, made that payment, it was accomplished. It satisfied the payment that needed to be made. And now we know Hebrews says that now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And that idea of sitting is there's no more need for sacrifice. It has been done. It has been paid. And the empty tomb proves that. It proves that. Paul says if Christ was still in the grave, we would we'd have no hope. And we'd still be dead in our sins. But because the grave is empty, we have all the hope, all the security, all the peace in the world because we know that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for your sin and my sin forever. Because the tomb is empty, we can have hope, security, know that we are forgiven and free. Jesus is risen. Oh, well, that's good, yeah. (laughs) Verse 7. Then the angel said, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you in Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Can you imagine what was going on with those women? I mean, we, we, the, the scripture tells us there's this, this, this fear, this reverential awe. This is like, man, can you believe just what happened? 
And they were overcome with this great joy because their Savior, who they thought was dead, is now alive. And they're going to see Him soon again in Galilee. This is another great implication for our lives that, that have been saved and we believe that the tomb is empty. There is, there's an astonishment. It's like, it's an amazing that Jesus' death was for me and my sin. I know what goes on in my heart. You know what goes in your heart. And sometimes I'm just amazed that like the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will come out of heaven, live the perfect life in my place and, and die on the cross for my sin. It, it just blows me away. It should blow you away. And then immediately my next, my next feeling is, thank you, thank you, thank you. Is great joy. Is great joy. The only way I think I can, I can illustrate this outside of, of my own heart is, is a sports analogy. It's like, it's a football analogy. It's the end of the game. There's one second left. Our, our team is down by five and we have the ball and we're on the 50 yard line. And all we have left to do is what? Throw up a Hail Mary, right? And so our, our guy goes back. For me, Ben Roethlisberger goes back, right? And he, and he, and he chucks it up. And, and, and in our minds, like, no hope. This ain't going to happen. And then all of a sudden, Juju Smith-Schuster goes up, grabs it, catches it. And we jump out of our chairs. We're like, whoa, that was amazing. I can't believe that just happened. Whoa, that was amazing. It's that kind of feeling. They were overcome with fear and great joy. This caused them to run and tell his disciples. The ladies heard the message from the angel and they ran. And I love that detail. Again, remember, they didn't come with their Lululemons on and their Nike running shoes, right? They, they came in their ceremonial garments to anoint the body. And then all of a sudden, they, they see that the, the dead Savior has been risen. And they run to tell the disciples. They are overcome with joy at what they just witnessed. And I want us to point out, I want to point out a pattern here at the tomb that these ladies that went through and that is relevant for us this morning. Verse six tells us to come and see. Verse seven tells us to go and tell. And this is the pattern for you and for me. Come and see, go and tell. First come. This is a great word. It's used throughout the scriptures as an invitation to come to Jesus. An invitation. This is the first step of the gospel. Some of you in here might not know Jesus. Well, today, Jesus is speaking to you through His Spirit, through His Word, and He is saying, come. He's saying, come. Experience me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Matthew loves this word, come. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Matthew nineteen fourteen, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. If you're in here and you do not know Jesus, today He's, he, he's asking you to come. Come experience His love, His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness. Come experience the kingdom of God. Jesus says, come. And listen, it doesn't matter what big stones you have in your past. It, it, it doesn't matter what you have done in your past. Jesus is inviting you to come and experience His love and mercy. Jesus will never, ever, ever say, don't come. He will never, ever, ever say, go away, you're too dirty. Jesus' words are always, come to Me and I will give you rest. We come and then we see. And what we see is, 
our sins have been forgiven. What we see is, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. His dying breath has brought me life. I know now it is finished. We can come to Jesus because we see that our sins have been dealt with by Jesus. And the empty tomb proves that because He has risen. You see, our faith is not a a blind faith or fairy story, but it's built on facts and history. This really happened. The tomb is empty and Jesus has come and see. Thomas Arnold, one of the great historians, said this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times to examine the weight and the evidence for those who have written about them. I know of no, no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us in Christ that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Jesus says, come, see. And when you come and see, our response is to repent of our sins and say, I believe. I believe in Jesus. And then when that happens, something happens inside of us. We cross over from death to life. The Spirit of God comes and dwells in us. All of a sudden, His Word becomes alive with us. And then we can only do the next thing is go to our circles of influence, our friends, our families, our co-workers, our students, and tell. And tell the good news of Christ and what He has done for me and what He's done for you. See, not only have we been saved from something, sin and death, again, but we've been saved to something. We've all been saved to a mission. We've all been called ambassadors of Christ to go to our circles of influence and share the greatest story with the greatest ramifications and implications on a person's life. Literally, heaven and hell. Life and death. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Remember, we're going to highlight this probably next week as an implication of the Gospel. It should propel all of us in here just like it propelled the ladies. If you've been impacted by the resurrected Christ, You have come. You have seen His goodness and grace in the Gospel for you. You have repented of your sins. You trusted Him. And now there's a burning desire for you to go and tell. Go and tell your friends and your family members and your co-workers and students to come and see. So we see this pattern here that that has lived on for 2,000 years. And because of that, you're here and I'm here. Your life and my life has been changed because someone bid us to come and see. And now we get to go and tell. That takes us to the final scene. The ladies in Jesus. Verse 9 and 10. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of His feet and they worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. I love this. This is so good. The angel, the ladies were told by the angels, hey, you're going to see Jesus, you got to go to Galilee. And so that's what they're expecting. So again, they're, they're, they're on their way together. They're, they're running first to the disciples to tell the disciples that Jesus decides to, to intercept them, to show himself to them. Have you ever been so excited to give a gift to someone that you just like, man, I got, I got this great gift for you? I can't give it to you for, you know, another month, but I got the best gift for you. And then you give it to them like two days later because you just can't wait, right? Anyone? 
Yeah, this is what this is like. These, these women are about to see the best gift that they could possibly have. Their, their dead Savior is, is, is risen. And they're going to see Him. And I can just see Jesus like, oh, I just can't wait. And He just shows up. And He, see, he meets them on the road. And He says to the women, greetings. I love that. I love Jesus' heart. <clears throat> but this is what's even better. That word greeting, that's just like a everyday greeting. Very ordinary. And, 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 and this is to, to contrast the angel that just came down from heaven. His appearance is like lightning, but white as snow. And the women are freaking out to this. The resurrected Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, just shows up and says, how you doing? Don't you love that? He might even said, hey girl, you know, I don't know. Just ordinary, just ordinary language. He just greets them. That's how approachable our Lord is. Sometimes my daughter, Madison, we're in a conversation and she forgets who she's talking to, right? And she uses ordinary high school girl talk. And all of a sudden she'll say like to me, girl, can you take me to my friend's house? And I'm like, girl. But that's how it happened. It's just ordinary conversation. The resurrected Christ meets these faithful, devoted women. And he just says, greetings. I love that. He's approachable. Once the ladies recognize Jesus, they bow down, they grab his feet, and they worship. They bow down, grab his feet, and worship. See, Jesus' resurrection is no vision, it's no hallucination, it's a physical resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this is the, the first fruits of the resurrection, resurrection bodies, new bodies. We're all going to get the same type of body that Jesus has. These resurrected bodies. They're, they're physical. They're real. You can touch them. Remember Thomas put his finger in Jesus' side and then he touched his hands. Here the women bow down and grab Jesus' feet. Again, I hope you guys are loving the details of this story and I hope it's impacting your heart on how, on how real it is. Jesus' feet. Uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, when, when he was a baby, six to seven months old, she would be kissing these feet. You guys know what a baby's feet are like six, seven months old? They're my, they're my favorite time of people's feet, of when babies are six and seven months old. I have five kids. I love my kids' feet at that month. I have my first granddaughter. She's about six, seven months old. And I love her feet. They're like those little chunks of blocks of meat, right? You just kiss them and, you know, you eat them and you, well, you, don't eat, you know what I'm saying, right? Who loves doing that? Who loves baby's feet in here? Amen. Now when my kids take off their shoes, it's like, give me a gas mask, right? <laughs> These are the feet that Jesus walked over all over Israel and proclaimed the good news of the gospel. These were the feet that were nailed to the cross for you and for me. 
And now they're resurrected feet. And these are the feet that we worship at. And again, this resurrected body, this first fruit, Jesus having this physical uh, resurrected body is implication for us. We know that one day we are going to have that resurrection body. Amen? Some of you in here are maybe battling some disease like a cancer and a, and a doctor is having trouble trying to diagnose and help you. Maybe some in you have chronic pain. Some of us in here just have normal everyday, man, you know, I turned 50 years old and God, I can't see, I can't walk. I mean, I just, just wait. <laughs> Don, I hope I'm as sharp as you when you're age, baby. You're a testimony of God's grace. Joni Erickson Tata, she's a quadriplegic. Her accident, her accident happened when she was about 18 years old. She's about 70 now, 70, 72, something like that. Again, this accident happened at 18. She was paralyzed from the neck down in a, in a wheelchair. She said this. She described the, the grief and the joy at this one uh, worship gathering she experienced so quick, this worship conference. The worship leader said to the, to the people there, some whatever, 600 people or whatever, said, we're all going to bow and kneel on our knees to worship Jesus. She was the only one in the audience that couldn't do that because she was in a wheelchair. This is what she said. Well, she couldn't kneel, she said. So she thought sitting there, as she saw everyone else bowing, she said, I was reminded that in heaven, I will have a new body. And the first thing I plan to do on resurrection legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus and afterwards I shall spring up to my feet, stretch out my arms and shout to anyone with an earshot, the whole world worthy is the Lamb. That's worship. That's what, that's what the physical resurrection does to someone like Joni or someone that again has a battle with a disease or chronic pain or just, just getting old. We we look forward to that resurrected body. We know it's coming. The empty tomb proves this for us. Then Jesus gives them the same message to the, to the women as the angel did with one slight change. And again, man, the details are so critical. A significant change. Let me see if you guys catch it. Verse 7, the angel said, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen. Verse 10 says, Jesus says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Do you guys see the, the difference there? The angel said, disciples. Jesus says, brothers. And ladies, you can put sisters in there as well. What a response for Jesus. It, it, it's a response of love, grace, mercy. Because where are the men? Where are the boys right now in this scene? They're hiding. They're scared to death. They deserted Jesus. They betrayed Jesus. They doubted Jesus. When he needed them most, they were gone. And yet, he says to the ladies, 
Go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. I don't know about you. I probably would have had a little different reaction. I would have probably said, go tell those boys, those, those scaredy cats, that I want to have a quick little chat with them. Right? About support. About having your back. That would have been me. Not Jesus. That's the Jesus we serve. He's full of love, grace, mercy, and truth. He says, go tell my brothers. Go tell my family. There's, there's a bumper sticker. If you're a Christian, I don't think you should have this bumper sticker or any bumper stickers on your car, but if you are, that's all right. The bumper sticker says, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. True. True. I guess if you're going to put one on, you put that one on, especially when you cut somebody off, right? It's like, we're not perfect, but we're forgiven. Amen? But that's true. We're not perfect. The disciples, the men, they weren't perfect. The women weren't even perfect. But they were forgiven. Because the gospel, the good news of Christ, is that it doesn't depend on my effort. It doesn't depend on your effort. It doesn't depend on how hard you work for Jesus and how good of a person you are. No, it depends solely on Jesus and what He has done for you and what He has done for me. It depends on His life. And Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And Jesus' resurrection proves that. That His performance for you and for me was flawless. It was perfect. And now it receives the righteousness, the grace, and the mercy of God. Well, this is a story that Matthew tells us. We talked about several ways in which the empty tomb impacts our, our lives and the implications of those of this story, of the empty tomb. And it's all summed up in one word. That's exactly what these ladies did. Is worship. When we walk out those doors today, we worship. We worship the Lord. What does that look like? It looks like singing. It looks like praying. It looks like forgiving one another. It looks like hospitality. The money you're going to have friends and family come over. It's going to be extending them grace, mercy, blessing them. And it's going to be you and me just taking a moment out of the day and being astonished the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. For you and for me. We're going to be overwhelmed with great, great joy. C.S. Lewis and R.C. Sproul were right. And if I could kind of combine them, I would say this. Christianity, the Gospel, Easter is the true drama. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Easter Sunday. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your life. You lived in our place. It was perfect. Life that we were called to live, but we couldn't live. Thank You for Your death on the cross. You were our substitute. Thank You for Your resurrection that proves that You truly were the Messiah, the Savior. Not only for the Jews, but for the whole world. 
for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And the offer is given to everyone in here. So there's someone in here that doesn't know Jesus. I pray today that, that you would call them. You would, you'd invite them. Come and see what Jesus has done for them. And today they would cross over from death to life. And, and how they receive that gift is simply by this, by, by acknowledging that you are their Savior. By repenting of their sin, that just, that means acknowledging like, yes, I, I've sinned. I'm not perfect. I've rebelled against you. And, and my hope is not in me now trying to clean myself up, but my hope is now entrusted in Christ and putting my faith in Jesus and what He did for me. And for us as that have done that, Lord, may, that, may we worship in all the ways that, that we can with every heart, every, every, every word, our, our thoughts, our actions. <coughs> may we worship You. And one big way we can do that is by going and telling. So today I pray that in our conversations that you would give opportunities for those of us in here to, to be around those who do not know Jesus to give the opportunity to, to share the good news of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.